Have you ever wondered if we are alone in the universe? Is there any scientific evidence showing that an intelligent designer created the heavens and the earth? Welcome to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk AM 570 and 910. You may have heard about the debate over intelligent design and Darwinism. Find out what the evidence says about the origin of life and mankind, and just what the experts are saying. Darwin or Design, brought to you by the C.S. Lewis Society. Now your host, the author of Doubts About Darwin and Darwin Strikes Back, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College in Trinity, Florida, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome to Darwin or Design, which tackles each week the biggest questions you could ask about the origins of the universe, of life, and of mankind, and of Bill Carl, <laughs> seated across from me, my technical producer, and an unusually brilliant specimen of humanity. It all began in Toledo, Ohio. That's right. Well, did you cl- get that guy right? Yes, yeah. and we have at the other end of the line Steve Meyer. Dr. Steve Meyer, in a way, needs no special introduction because he is one of the architects of the design theory, the, you might say the design paradigm, a way of approaching the origins question from a fresh and really evidence-driven way that really pays careful attention to the best explanation that you can bring to bear on the question of where we came from. We are excited because this is the week, well, starting the coming week, as you hear this program on Saturday, this coming week will be the bombshell, the dropping of the intellectual uh, package, if you will, that presents the case for design in the book by Dr. Steve Meyer. And Dr. Meyer, a guest uh, on the phone out there in Redmond, Washington, or actually near Redmond in your home, I believe. Is that right, Dr. Meyer? That's right. We're Redmond, Washington. Bill Gates kind of. Bill Gates, yeah. You'd probably look look over your back shoulder and see his front door. Um, But Steve Meyer, Dr. Stephen C. Meyer, did his Ph.D. uh, work at at Cambridge University in England. We were just there a few weeks ago leading a C.S. Lewis tour. And we got to see the pub where Watson and Crick shouted out, we've discovered this secret of life, as they had unraveled the helical, the double helix nature of the DNA molecule. Well, we're going to be talking about what Dr. Meyer brought home from Cambridge uh, 20 plus years ago, and really developed in the years since then, a theory of the um, probing the cell and the signature, the DNA signature in the cell, and finding the most powerful evidence of probably anywhere in the world of a design behind life. We're going to get to that in just a minute. We do want to thank our two sponsors, the C.S. Lewis Society, an organization which helps skeptics doubt their doubts. We go on to university campuses and college campuses in the U.S. and overseas, especially in Europe, and we present the case for the credibility of the design hypothesis. And of course, when raising the question, who might the designer be, we like to present the case for evidence that the designer has made himself known in terms of the Christian revelation. Uh, that is the separate question that arises from the design discovery. But we're able to and I'm glad to tackle both of those questions on a university campus where often the new atheism seems to be the hot-button topic of the year. We also want to thank our uh, special guest sponsor, you might say, the new sponsor this last year, and that's St. Luke's Cataract and Laser Institute up in Tarpon Springs, Florida. But not only there, they're proliferated all throughout Tampa Bay and Dale Mabry, the heart of Tampa. They're up in Spring Hill. They're in Bayonet Point. They're in St. Pete. And we'll be talking more as we get into another segment about the amazing things that they're doing at St. Luke's Cataract and Laser Institute, the people that bring you excellence with love in top-notch eye care and more. And we'll be hearing about Dr. Gills and his exciting team and what they're doing up there in Tarpon Springs, etc. 
Well, we are very, very thrilled and honored, and it's a, it's a joy to have somebody of the caliber of Steve Myers. Some of you out there have seen Unlocking the Mystery of Life, the documentary, which was uh, developed by Illustra Media and has uh, Dr. Meyer as one of the key narrators. He's an on-camera commentator, especially in the latter half of that documentary when talking about the origin of life. Dr. Meyer, you have a book coming out uh, just literally, just a few days from right now. Tell us about how you got kind of excited about this concept of a signature in the cell. Well, for me, this story goes back quite a number of years. I was uh, working in the field of uh, digital signal processing of seismic sections. I was in uh, it was an information technology in the oil industry, and uh, I heard about a conference that came to our town. I was working in Dallas at the time in the mid-'80s, and the conference was investigating the origin of the universe, the origin of life, and some other big questions, and uh, I was you know, uh, shocked to find at the conference that there was a really spirited debate about the origin of life. As a college student, I'd learned that the evolutionary explanations kind of had everything all sewn up, and uh, on the panel at this conference was a scientist, Dean Kenyon, who announced that uh, though he was a leading chemical evolutionary theorist, he no longer believed his own theory. And in fact, at that conference, he suggested that perhaps design had played some role in the origin of life. Another scientist there, Charles Thaxton, had just completed a big book called The Mystery of Life's Origin, which was a chapter and verse critique of the idea that the first life could have arisen from undirected processes in the primordial soup. And what shocked me in listening to the the discussion was that that uh, all the scientists on the panel agreed with him. Uh, mm-hmm. They agreed with his critique, but then they got real hot under the collar when he suggested that perhaps uh, there was evidence of what he called an intelligent cause behind life. And uh, uh, at that point, people began to uh, uh, question his scientific sanity, and the, <laughs> the discussion got um, very much less objective, and there was a lot of uh, uh, tussling back and forth and, and some... Um, a lot of heat, and I thought, man, this is an interesting debate. I was in the audience. Afterwards, someone introduced me to Thaxton. Uh, he he was a very friendly guy and uh, was interested to find out that I'd done a little science writing, so we started meeting and talking, and I learned more about his ideas. A year later, I went off to graduate school in uh, to, uh, to England, and um, I had a project already. I wanted to investigate this, what I, what I call in the book, the DNA enigma, the mystery of the information, that the origin of the information you need to get life going. And as I learned at the conference, the critical reason, there were many reasons, but perhaps the most important reason that scientists were skeptical about the origin of the first life was that uh, no one could explain the origin of the information, the digital code that's inscribed along the spine of the DNA molecule. And I thought that was a first-class mystery, and I, I went off to graduate school with uh, the intent of... Um, of, of studying that and uh, and see if I can make some progress on it myself. So that that's that was the germination of right. The and the rest project. is history, as they say, because you did your PhD dissertation, if I remember, or DPhil, forget what they call it out there in Cambridge, in the um, inference to the best explanation. In other words, how des- design and descent, common descent and design, are parallel explanations that can be compared with each other. Correct. Well, yeah, I was specifically focusing on the question of the origin of life, and I, I had a app because of my uh, discussions with Thaxton, I had a, a burning question. Um, Thaxton had proposed this idea of an intelligent cause as being a possible scientific explanation for the origin of the, of the information you needed to get life going, and he floated it as a, a kind of an intuitively plausible thing in an epilogue chapter. Mm-hmm. And I began to wonder, 
I, could this idea be developed in full? Could it be made into a rigorous scientific hypothesis? And so one of the first things that I investigated when I was doing my Ph.D. work was, well, how do scientists reason about events in the very remote past? What is the scientific method they use to come up with theories and explanations for events like the origin of species or the origin of the first life? And so it wasn't long before I was reading Darwin, not just uh, with a scientific eye, but with an eye on his method. How did he reason? How did he go about investigating these, these uh, origins events in the past? And his work led me to, uh, to other 19th century authors, including um, Charles Lyell, the great geologist, who really pioneered the method of, of, of studying the past. Mm-hmm. And Lyell's idea was that, um, well, his famous dictum was that the present is the key to the past. But there was one day when I was reading Lyell, and it was actually the, it was just the, the front piece, the, uh, the title page of his book. And I realized that, um, that uh, well, a light went on for me, because he said that the, the, the key to studying the remote past was, as he put it in the, the subtitle of his book, we, that we should be looking for causes now in operation. Hmm. And he, he and Darwin both had a very simple, straightforward rule of reasoning, and it was just that if you're looking for, uh, if you want to explain an event in the remote past, you should look for a cause which is known to produce the effect in question, known to produce the thing you're trying to explain. So out here in eastern Washington, we've got a big layer of volcanic ash, and if you're applying the, the Darwin and Lyell rule of reasoning, you'd say, well, the volcanic eruption hypothesis is a better explanation than the, than the um, earthquake hypothesis because we know that earthquakes don't produce layers of ash, and we know that volcanoes do. Very yep. simple, straightforward rule of reasoning, mm-hmm. but... I began to think about that and think, well, what is the presently acting cause, the cause now in operation for the production of information, right. the origin of digital code? And the light went on. It's, it's intelligence. It's, right. it's mind. So well, that was, uh, I realized that, was that the, 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 rule, the, the method of reasoning that Darwin and Lyell were using actually justified uh, the, uh, an inference to design. So it was kind of ironic, Darwin's, Darwin's method of reasoning applied to what we now know, things he didn't know, points to intelligent design is the best explanation. We're talking to Steve Meyer out in Redmond, Washington, author of the new fantastically important book, Signature in the Cell. Signature in the Cell referring to DNA and the evidence for intelligent design. Out this week from Harper One. You need to make a beeline either to your computer to uh, log into your favorite source, internet source, and order this book. It has about 20 slender chapters. It is a fantastic tour de force. I've read a good chunk of it. haven't read every, every word of it, but uh, my hat's off. goes off to you, Steve Meyer. We're going to be coming back in just a few minutes and um, just talk a little bit more about some of the particulars in the book. Steve, I imagine that you uh, – we got about 30 seconds uh, real quick before we have to take a break. I imagine you have been working on this for quite some time. Well, yeah, one of the things I did was kind of weave my own story of discovery into the argument that I developed. So, yeah, it's been a, it's been a long time in coming, maybe yeah. too long. Some people have given up that I'd ever get it done. Well, congratulations on finishing the book, and it's really a great read because you do weave your own story in with the story of DNA. Not that you're as old as DNA, necessarily. I was born three years before the structure of DNA was discovered, so I'm <laughs> You go way us. back. Yeah, yeah I, I'm, I'm an old man compared to you, youngster. But uh, Steve Meyer on the phone with us uh, from uh, his office out in Redmond, Washington. He is the director of the Center for Science and Culture for the Discovery Institute. And he has just produced, released this week. You can get it right away. You can order it and have it in a matter of days. Signature in the Cell, perhaps the most important book ever done to present the case for design. We'll be right back with Dr. Steve Meyer after a quick break. 
I'm Dr. Tom Woodward. You're listening to Darwin or Design. Welcome back to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk, AM 570 and 910 WTBN. Once again, here's the host of Darwin or Design, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome back to Darwin or Design, and we're having an exciting discussion today with the author of a new book, Fresh Out, Hot Off the Press, Signature in the Cell is the name, and the subtitle is DNA and the Evidence for Intelligent Design. Uh, the author is Steve Meyer. Dr. Stephen C. Meyer completed his doctorate uh, at Cambridge University. Some of you guys have heard of that. It's where C.S. Lewis taught after a 20-some year stint at Oxford. Cambridge offered him the full doctorate, and he jumped at it, twice the pay and half the work. Dr. Steve Meyer is a graduate of that uh, famed university. Did you ever have a chance to go over and visit Maudlin College, where, where oh, C.S. Lewis did. taught? We used to take friends there, and there was a, a chapel there where Lewis uh, preached several sermons that are now in print, and uh, hmm. I took uh, my brother-in-law there, who's a pastor, and he got quite a kick out of climbing up into the pulpit and getting his picture taken. You know, cool. So, yeah. That's great. Well, we just got back from taking a quick tour there. It was a great time. But uh, more in uh, direct uh, consideration of today in our program is the book, which Dr. Steve Meyer has been working on for a number of months, perhaps a couple years, and has finally brought to the light of day. Signature in the Cell is a book which presents the case for the design theory from the tremendous amount of information inscribed in that double helix uh, molecule that's wound up inside cells of all kinds. And Steve, tell us a little bit about the complexity that you see and, you know, even how DNA is modified and used for other purposes, but the complexity and the information um, intensity or, or, you know, the ladenness of that informational molecule. Yeah, that's a big story, actually. And maybe it's good to kind of start back at the beginning with Watson and Crick themselves. At, uh, Cambridge, you mentioned that you had gotten to visit the, the Eagle Pub there mm-hmm. where they, they shouted out that they'd, they'd cracked the secret of life. My department was just around the corner on a little hmm. um, uh, alley called Free School Lane, which was right next to the Cavendish Laboratory where they did a lot of the modeling work that uh, resulted in the discovery of the helix, the double helix structure. Mm-hmm. But I think even more important than the discovery they made in 1953 of the, the, uh, the structure of the molecule itself was uh, a hypothesis that Crick proposed in 1957. It was called the sequence hypothesis. Of course, he couldn't have proposed it had they not first cracked the structure of the molecule. But Crick began to realize that uh, there was a connection between what DNA does and the construction of proteins in the cell. And he proposed that along the spine of the DNA, on the inside of the molecule, there are the four chemicals called bases or nucleotide bases, that, that these chemicals function just like alphabetic characters in a written language or digital characters in a machine code or a section of software. This is called the sequence hypothesis. And the idea is that the arrangement of these of these chemicals uh, determines the uh, the instruction set for producing the the proteins that the cell needs to, to stay alive. So that the the DNA was functioning literally as an information storage molecule. It functioned exactly like machine code or written text, and that's a mind blowing discovery. It took about six to eight years in the period that historians call the molecular biological revolution. Historians of science. 
and uh, to to, uh, to to verify Crick's hypothesis. It wasn't a single experiment that could do so. But in the book, I tell the story of how this was done, and it's just an extraordinary period in the history of science. And in many ways, we're still digesting the the implications of that because uh, uh, the the materialistic um, perspective in science was so deeply ingrained from the time of Darwin forward that even though scientists became aware they were dealing with information, they still had the idea that perhaps we could explain this, the origin of this information by uh, forces of chemistry or by random interactions of molecules or something. And it, it, that is, uh, <clears throat> each of, as each of those approaches have failed to account for the critical information you need to build life in the first place, um, the mystery surrounding Watson and Crick's discovery has deepened. And that's, and that's, in a way, kind of an ironic statement, because we typically think of Watson and Crick as having um, solved a, a great mystery, and they did. They solved the mystery of where the information, or at least some of the information necessary to heredity resides. They also solved the mystery of what exactly DNA does. But they created another mystery, and that is the mystery of the origin of life. Where, where did that information come from that you need to build the the first living organism. Wow. We're talking to Steve Meyer, author of the new book, Signature in the Cell. Signature in the Cell is produced by Harper One, I see here on the front page, and it is now available as of this week, I believe it's Thursday of this week uh, coming, that you can buy it anywhere, and I'm probably um, sticking my neck out a little bit, but I would imagine the major bookstore chains will be offering it as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. Harper's very good at, uh, at the book distribution, so it'll be out in yeah, the major chains. I, I don't know. Yeah. You, you should say the names on the air, but people know the ones. Well, you know, yeah, yeah the, the usual suspects. The usual su- suspects. That's exactly. right. And, of course, Amazon and all the uh, places on the web where you can uh, find your, your favorite uh, books. Uh, they will carry it. I want to just ask you a couple questions about the end part of the book. I did uh, kind of take a peek at the end, <laughs> see how it turns out. I do that too, Tom. Well, I know you're supposed to read books I can't, straight I through, can't, but you know, sometimes you've got to peek at the yeah, end. Yeah, I can't, <laughs> can't hide my secrets here. You, you talk about a number of the kind of zingers, the hostile responses or the put-downs, the torpedoes that are thrown at design theory to say, oh, well, it really doesn't, you know, this is not a material theory. It involves intelligent causes, and that's religion. When you when people throw that kind of, like, um, rudimentary attack your way, how do you respond? This is just religion in disguise. Well, there's, all, there's a whole class of those things. The first class of them is to say, well, it isn't science, and then once people... Uh, lose that argument, then they typically say, well, therefore, it is, but it's religion, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, as to the first, it isn't science. That really is a question of definitions, and that's one of the things I I examine in the book, is that uh, what what exactly, this is kind of a strange objection of of scientific theories, or of any theory, we want to know, most importantly, is it true or not? People tend to bypass that question altogether. If you say there's, uh, there's strong evidence for intelligent design, inside life, look at the digital code, look at what we know about what it takes to produce code, code always comes from an intelligence, et cetera, et cetera, as the argument develops. Uh, typically, the response is not, hey, we've got a better explanation for the origin of that information. Hmm. The response is instead, hey, that idea isn't science. But w- w- what exactly is that objection? All it is is an attempt to reclassify or to classify the argument in such a way that makes it unnecessary to deal with it. But really what we want to know is whether or not there is evidence of intelligent design in life or, or more broadly, how life first began, whether intelligence or purely undirected processes were responsible. And 
simply classifying one of those two approaches as unscientific doesn't really tell us anything more about what actually happened. It's just as a way of trying to classify an idea we don't like out of existence. If it's not science, then sure. presumably we don't have to deal with it. But sure. in, in fact, I show in the book that there's lots of reasons to regard intelligent design, the theory of intelligent design, as a scientific theory. It's based on evidence. It uses a standard method of scientific reasoning. Um, and and uh, there's a whole community of scientists investigating it, blah, blah, blah. You know, mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot of good reasons. But I also show that the, that the attempts to justify those definitions invariably fail. What happens is people will say things like, well, it's not scientific because it invokes an unobservable entity. But then you realize that uh, theoretical physics invokes unobservable entities. Uh, evolutionary biology invokes unobservable entities, past events that we can no longer see for example, um, that science very typically attempts to explain what can be observed by reference to entities or events that can't be observed. And if that's allowable for, for contemporary physics or evolutionary biology or many other fields, why, why can't uh, sure. the theory of intelligent design do the same? So these attempts to define intelligent design out of existence, I found invariably fail because they either define science so narrowly as to exclude pretty much all scientific theories or many scientific theories, including the main competitors to intelligent design, or else they, they, uh, they simply fail to provide a, a, a reasonable um, reason for exclu- excluding intelligent design altogether. Sure. Steve Meyer on the phone with us today from Washington State is the author of a book called Signature in the Cell, if you've just joined us. The subtitle is DNA... DNA and the Evidence for Intelligent Design. He is a graduate uh, with a number of science degrees and his Ph.D. uh, from Cambridge University in England, is in the philosophy of science. So I would assume, Dr. Steve Meyer, that you would, among many, many others, of course, but you would be one of those who would be an authority on what science is. And so I appreciate your clarifying that uh, the issue of what science is really isn't a matter of science. It's a matter of philosophy of science. That, well, actually, that's, I didn't clarify that. That's a good point, Tom. Mm-hmm. It, it's, uh, you, know, you have scientists who are invoking a definition of science, but typically the, the scholars that study the scientific method are philosophers of science. Mm-hmm. So the scientists who say, well, this isn't science, are really, are, are really acting as philosophers, and it turns out that they're, they're not doing a very good job of it because the, 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 the definitional standards they invoke are not ones that, that typically uh, evolutionary biology or many other fields can actually meet. So they're, it, it's kind of a, um, a form of... Uh, they're in, erecting double standards, is sure. what they're doing. Sure. And, um, and so when, what I've shown is that if you, if you judge uh, the theory of intelligent design and its chief competitors by the same standard of scientific reasoning, in, e- in each case, either all, all theories are excluded because you've, you've chosen a standard that's way too restrictive to actually describe what scientists do, or, or uh, all the theories are, are included or endorsed, validated, if you've chosen the standard that's more realistic for how science actually operates. So there's no way to discriminate the scientific standing by u- using a definitional um, criterion, sure. the, the scientific standing of intelligent design and its chief competitors like, say, chemical evolutionary theory or neo-Darwinism. We're going to be coming back to the author of Signature in the Cell, Dr. Steve Meyer, in just a minute. We have to take a quick break. And we will also be asking him about the legacy of Dr. Charles Darwin himself. 
uh, the other Cambridge graduate who wrote this bombshell book 150 years ago, and be talking about the implications of the new atheism, uh, led by Richard Dawkins of Oxford, and some other exciting questions up my sleeve. We'll be right back on Darwin or Design. I'm Tom Woodward, your host. Welcome back to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk, AM 570 and 910 WTBN. Once again, here's the host of Darwin or Design, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome back to Darwin or Design. Sometimes when I'm teaching science and people ask me, you know, how did this or that class or this or that lecture go? And I kind of laugh. I say, well, having far too much fun talking about the problems of Darwinism and the evidence for design. And I feel the same way. Dr. Steve Meyer, the one who's written this bombshell new book, Signature in the Cell, signature refers to the DNA signature of intelligence within the cell. Uh, This book has been compared very, very often and now very favorably with the bombshell book of the mid-1990s, Darwin's Black Box by Dr. Michael Behe. So we'll uh, hopefully see this book generate a whole new phase of excited discussion, and we will be with Dr. Steve Meyer again, who's holding on the phone from his office out in Washington State. But first, we want to do a quick thank you to our two sponsors, the C.S. Lewis Society, an organization which it has been my privilege to lead for the last 21 years up at the campus at Trinity College of Florida, based in Newport Ritchie, up there near Tarpon Springs. And our second sponsor we have also mentioned is in the Tarpon Springs area, and that's St. Luke's Cataract and Laser Institute. St. Luke's has been offering top-notch eye care service, uh, both for people in the uh, immediate Tampa Bay area, and others have flown in to Tampa Bay from literally around the world. I was able to visit Dr. Billy Graham uh, just as he was recovering from his cataract surgery at St. Luke's, Dr. Gill's. The founder and chief surgeon of St. Luke's introduced me to Dr. Graham as he was in the final phase of uh, being checked out, and it was a real privilege to meet that graduate of our college, Trinity College of Florida, of course. St. Luke's is a pioneer in cataract and laser surgery, and I might just mention that for more than three decades, uh, they've been a leader in innovative technology for eye surgery, and they've introduced the no-stitch cataract surgery, the no-needle anesthesia, astigmatism correction techniques, They've used intraocular antibiotics. I mean, there's so many things that they have brought to the forefront and developed and blended into their um, eye care. And, of course, they also do optometry. They have special auditory specialists uh, able to care for hearing loss. They have um, all kinds of um, – they are able to do with uh, deal with droopy eye syndrome. And so we're really thankful that such a, a world-renowned eye care center has become our sponsor here at the Darwin or Design weekly program on WTBN. Thank you, St. Luke's. Dr. Steve Meyer, you have completed a marathon journey in producing this book, 20 exciting brief chapters that uh, really trace the story of the development of genetics, the development, at least the modern age of DNA-oriented genetics, and how the genes um, spelled out within the cells of living things carry information, but then they transfer or process that information from DNA to two other forms. Would you just remind our audience how that works? DNA becomes what becomes what? Yeah, there's a, you know, in civics class in the 
we used to learn, you know, how a bill becomes a law. Well, there's uh, we've had this a- animated uh, h- how the DNA produces protein, but it's just an absolutely fascinating uh, process. You have the four-character digital code inscribed along the inside of the spine of the, the double helix molecule DNA. It unwinds. It's copied, a single-stranded copy of that that uh, that message, that those genetic assembly instructions in the form of an RNA molecule is then transported out to a, a site called the ribosome, which is, in a sense, a, a, a chemical factory. And at the ribosome site, uh, the proteins are produced with the help of an adapter molecule that uh, it actually is where the, the code of life is embedded called a, a tRNA, and it carries along amino acids that are matched up with the little triplets, the, the, the genetic words, and one by one the, um, the amino acids are, are linked to form the growing protein chain. And then there's, uh, in, and that's a, only a simple sketch of the process, it's, there's uh, what's called post-transcriptional uh, post-translational processing that takes place after that. Sometimes there are, there are proteins called chaperones that help the, the, the newly built proteins fold into the right structure. It's an incredibly complex process. And mm. we now know uh, as well that, um, um, that inside the cell there's, uh, or inside the DNA, there's the sections of the DNA that, that don't code for proteins. And these sections were used to be thought to be junk, uh, non-coding DNA that was, it was assumed to be the remnant of the trial and error process of the Darwinian mechanism. And we now know that those sections of the genome are replete with function and are essential to the to the uh, proper functioning of the cell overall. So it's it's just an ex- exquisitely complex uh, system inside life. We're talking today with Dr. Steve Meyer out in Redmond, Washington, where he works with the Center for Science and Culture of the, the Discovery Institute, based in Seattle. Some of you have, uh, may have seen the movie Expelled: No Intelligence Allowed. And Dr. Steve Meyer was featured briefly in that film as uh, Ben Stein. I remember him kind of finally finding your uh, office suite down there. Wasn't that right? And yeah, he was. He he was under the impression apparently that we were a massively well-funded organization, and so he thought we'd have a huge, huge office tower or something. And Mm -hmm. so, uh, and he kept asking people in the street. Our influence was solely the result of the power of our ideas, not our pocketbooks. Right. Well, it was a great, uh, you know, movie, great uh, coverage of the hostility and the persecution directed. You know, it was a kind of an eye-opener, I think, for many, many people across the U.S. Yeah, apparently over a million people saw, uh, saw the film in theaters, so we were we were really delighted that's, at the, that's the great. success of it. Yeah. Well, and of course, you're in the middle of this, uh, I guess you, you could say a book tour. You're, I believe, understand that you're going to uh, Washington, D.C. in a couple days. Yeah, that's exactly right. There's uh, the... Uh, the uh, the publishers have this idea that once you write a book, you should promote it. So I guess <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. I'm so, I'm so tired from having written it, and we'll see how that goes. But it's it's a if, it's going to be fun if I just get to talk to people like you on the te- on the telephone. So. Would you encourage people to not only read the book, but as soon as they're into it, to write up a little thing uh, on Amazon? Oh well, I'd be delighted if you did that. It might be a little uh, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> cheeky for the author to recommend that. But yeah, of course, there's, I will recommend there, that. Th- this is one of the, I think, most spirited debates going on in the culture right now. If you any of the books that you see on Amazon that address this have typically a bimodal distribution. It's mm-hmm. uh, you know you have 
some people love the books. If they're about intelligent design, you have you know, lots and lots of people saying that they give it a five rating, five-star rating, and then there are some people that say it's a zero or a one-star rating. Yeah. You know, so, but, uh, yes, and the one-star the, ratings usually are like, I hate this book. I hate it, this book, yeah. And, so and, and it doesn't look like kinda, they've, they've read it. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit, just very briefly, uh, for maybe a couple minutes, about Darwin himself, since you uh, studied at that great university, Cambridge University, where Darwin studied. And by the way, I'm I'm sheepish in, in having to correct my words from the previous segment. I said he was a doctor. Well, I, don't, I think he just got the master's, whereas you got the doctor doctorate from uh, Cambridge, so I, I stand corrected. But uh, let me just go ahead and ask you to tell us what you see as the legacy of Charles Darwin today, where he may have had some value and uh, where his theory does have some credibility and where we can learn from his mistakes that are becoming more and more glaring. Well, that's a great question, Tom. Um, Darwin gave us a lot of things. He gave us uh, the theory of evolution. He gave us uh, an understanding of a mechanism called natural selection. He also pioneered a method for studying uh, events in the in the remote past, especially events having to do with the origins of new living forms. And um, and so all of those are, I think, great contributions to science. I think the, the central legacy of Darwin, however, is typically understood as his refutation of the design argument. Um, uh, Francisco Ayala, one of the past presidents of the AAAS, explained that Darwin was able to explain the directive organization of living living things, he says, w- without any reference to design or the action of any creator or any external agent. In other words, in the Darwinian view, life looks as though it were designed for a purpose. Richard Dawkins says life uh, biology is a study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. But he says, of course, that appearance is an illusion because Darwin's mechanism of natural selection is supposed to be able to explain away the appearance of design without itself being in any way guided or directed. So the Darwinian, if you accept Darwinian science, if you accept Darwin's explanation for the origin of the appearance of design, you have to conclude there is no real design in biology, and therefore the, the classical argument from design has, has been refuted by Darwin's theory. And in philosophy textbooks and biology textbooks, at the college level, you, you learn this, um, this is asserted repeatedly. So I think that's the central legacy that's claimed for Darwin. I think what my book does is show that, that um, while Darwin has a lot of uh, important things that he contributed to science, in particular, I think this method of, of reasoning and studying the remote past, the irony is that if you apply that method to analyze what we now know that Darwin didn't know, in particular, the, the centrality and importance of information to the function of living organisms, you come to the opposite conclusion because we know that the, the, if the present is the key to the past, if our present knowledge of cause and effect should guide our reasoning about the past, the most logical thing to conclude is that uh, that digital code uh, had, an intelligent, had an intelligent source. We, we know from experience that, that um, that information always rises from an, always arises from an intelligent source. So when we find information in the cell of every organism on Earth, uh, the most logical thing to conclude is that that life itself uh, had an intelligent source as well. Today we're talking to Dr. Steve Meyer, Stephen C. Meyer. He is the author of the new major major book out just this week, Signature in the Cell. 
DNA and the evidence for intelligent design. We're going to be coming right back to ask a couple more zingers of Dr. Meyer and get his uh, take on the new atheism that has been propounded by Dr. Richard Dawkins of Oxford University. And I've got another couple questions in my back pocket. Uh, you, you're listening to Darwin or Design, and I'm Tom Woodward, your host. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk, AM 570 and 910 WTBN. Once again, here's the host of Darwin or Design, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome back to Darwin or Design, the program that is tackling the kind of question we're dealing with today with Dr. Steve Meyer out in Redmond, Washington. Where does life come from and where does in particular DNA, the signature in the cell, come from? And that's the name of uh, Dr. Meyer's book. If you're just joining us on Darwin or Design, we are actually talking to one of the architects of the intelligent design theory. And Dr. Steve Meyer, you're expecting, I guess, uh, both kinds of reaction from the scientific community, both um, enthusiasm and curmudgeonly attacks, I guess. Well, you know, I've been really pleasantly surprised so far. I, I uh, The book has gotten some really nice endorsements from some very leading scientists. A member of the National Academy of Science, Phil, Phil Skell, Wonderful. longtime professor mm-hmm. at uh, Penn State, it was held an endowed chair there, a chemistry professor, mm. um, uh, arguably one of the leading geneticists in, in Great Britain, uh, Norman Nevin, who has all those British letters after his name, mm-hmm. uh, who just was very positive about the book. So mm-hmm. I, I'm... Uh, I'm hopeful that fair-minded scientific readers are going to are going to find it very compelling. Tremendous. Um, obviously, we expect the, the the attacks from the usual suspects, but uh, Eugenie Scott and company <laughs> and company. You know, they'll they'll the, we already know some of the things they'll say, but it's uh, um, we want them to have to engage and answer the argument. And uh, I hope listeners who see the debate unfold will um, call them call them on any ad hominem attacks that they make because that's the. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of standard fare. You know. Sure, sure. Well, it, we've been talking about Darwin himself, where the legacy... I, I'm sure your listeners, are they have the discernment to tell the difference between a, a, a genuine counter-argument and just right. a, you know, a, a cheap shot. So. Our <laughs> listeners are fantastic. So I think that they would pick up any such uh, slipshod, you know, kind of cheap shot compared to the more uh, substan- substantial reply. Let's talk about the new atheism, which has been kind of the source of great revenue for Richard Dawkins and Daniel Dennett and Christopher, you know, um, Hitchens, I think it is. Yeah, those guys are they're making a lot of money. Uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're laughing all the way to the bank. God, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, I mean, how does how does this phenomenon of new atheism, which basically asserts, if I remember some of the major arguments that, you know, intelligent thinking people who know their science couldn't ever think of a of an, an intelligence behind life they and specifically they'll try to debunk the god hypothesis is totally canceled by the darwinian you know overwhelming evidence that we have in front of us so how does this book kind of at least indirectly or maybe even directly address those kinds of claims well it's interesting the um, the new atheists have a premise and the premise is there's no evidence for design in nature, no evidence for design in biology. And since they argue further, the, the argument for design was always the most credible reason to believe in God. Um, after the Darwinian Revolution, the, uh, 
the case for God is evaporated, that uh, while you can't positively disprove that God exists, Richard Dawkins, uh, Dawkins argues that belief in God is, is tantamount to a delusion since there's, there's no evidence of design in, in nature. But uh, my, my book shows that the whole premise of the new atheism is false, that there is compelling evidence of design at the point of the origin of the first life, if not elsewhere, and that evidence is found in the, the digital code that's stored in the DNA molecule and the whole complex information processing system that is responsible for expressing that information. And, um, and that that information is also necessary to produce the first life. Now, interestingly, Dawkins himself has publicly admitted that he has no better explanation than design for, for the origin of that event. In the, in the film uh, Expelled, he admits to Ben Stein that, quote, no one knows. Uh, how life first originated. And he's talking about the evolutionary biology community. So um, if Dawkins doesn't have a better explanation of design, and if his whole case is based on the claim that there is no evidence of design in biology, really what gives? I mean, how does he, where does he come off deciding um, the, the rest of his argument is true when he, he says that the absence of evidence for design shows that God doesn't exist? And, in essence, my book cuts the legs out from underneath his the, his whole argument and that of the other new atheists. Because doesn't uh, Dr. Dawkins really argue that the mutation selection hypothesis is the genius of Darwin, and we really ought to just kind of you know be all enthusiastic, excited, and really compelled to believe in Darwinism because of this random process yeah, he, has assembled he, he, the he DNA. Yeah, a great deal of faith in the power of the mutation selection mechanism. And yet that mechanism doesn't, and I have a whole chapter on this in, in the book, but that mechanism doesn't do anything to explain the origin of the first life. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, natural selection doesn't even get going until you have a, a, a self-replicating organism. So to invoke it at the prebiotic level is just a contradiction in terms, as many evolutionary biologists have acknowledged. So <laughs> Dawkins builds a whole metaphysical castle in the sky based on the alleged powers of mutation and selection, but... Mutation and selection cannot account for the origin of the information you need to build life in the first place, and therefore that mechanism does not explain away this compelling evidence of design that I address in the book. Again, if you're just joining us on Darwin or Design, we're talking to Dr. Stephen C. Meyer. Dr. Steve Meyer, an old friend of mine. I mean, I'm the old guy, and he's the younger guy. And he is the author of the Signature in the Cell book, a new book out this week subtitled DNA and the Evidence for Intelligent Design. It's uh, produced by Harper One, and you can get it literally anywhere, major chains, online. Uh, we will be carrying it in July at our website, apologetics.org. Dr. Meyer, what would you say if someone, let's say a, a member of a church group, comes up to you and say, but, but Dr. Francis Collins, this leading geneticist who for many years was director of the Human Genome Project, says in his little book, The Language uh, a language of God, I believe it's called, uh, he says, you know, that we should not trust the progress or the view the intelligent design theory as making any progress. It's not headed to the promised land as a ship. It's headed to the bottom of the sea. Uh, what would you say to those who are really persuaded by Francis Collins, who is, by the way, an evangelical? Well, I, I think uh, Collins's position is actually kind of uh, interesting. It's a, mixed, it's a mixed bag, in a way. He starts with um, 
he actually makes arguments for intelligent design in the book, although he doesn't call them that. He talks about the fine-tuning of the laws of physics and chemistry and argues that that's a compelling reason to believe that there is uh, intelligent design behind the whole universe. His title, Language of God, seems to suggest that the DNA is also the product of an intelligent source, although he seems to disclaim that once you read the book because he says that... uh, undirected, uh, or the, the Darwinian evolution or evolution can explain the origin of, of the genome. Um, but uh, he also admits to having no explanation for the origin of the first life, which is what my book is about. So I'm really not, I'm not sure how Collins w- would respond to the argument that I'm making in the book. And what I do in the book is concede for the sake of argument uh, that uh, the Darwinian evolution is true. I don't actually believe that, but my point is that there's no reason, that there's evidence for design, compelling evidence for design at the point of the origin of the first life, whether Darwin's theory is adequate or not. Many people don't realize that Darwin didn't explain the origin of the first life, and, and Collins doesn't explain the origin of the first life either. In fact, he makes clear he is completely agnostic on the question. He has no, he has no explanation, nor, do, nor does standard evolutionary science. So, in in some ways, there's there is uh, no no reason for someone who likes Collins's work not to like mine as well, and and uh, and and, uh, and and I think what I established that Collins intimates, but doesn't, but seems to then later disclaim, is that there is actually evidence of design in the DNA molecule. So I think uh, what what he treats as a metaphor, I treat as a reality and defend. So I think that's a. Um, a wrinkle on the debate that that may uh, may advance the discussion. That's important clarification uh, from you. I uh, appreciate that. We're talking to Dr. Steve Meyer out in Redmond, uh, Washington State. He is the director of the Center for Science and Culture and the author of an extremely important new book out this week: Signature in the Cell, DNA, and the Evidence for Intelligent Design. Uh, Dr. Meyer, when I wrote my book about two years ago called um, Darwin Strikes Back, my sequel to Doubts About Darwin, and when I was researching the origin of life, I actually had two chapters, eight and nine, in my book on that issue. I remember discovering that they've done some knockout experiments where they've knocked out genes from a very already primitive, struggling, you know, mycoplasma, I think it is, genitalium. Uh, which only had like 480 genes, and they keep they kept knocking, knocking them out. Yeah, the minimal complexity. And they experiment. and they got yeah. down to a minimal complexity of about 246, 200, 250 genes, and you just don't seem to be able to get below that. And that's a lot of DNA, isn't it? That's a huge amount of information. Mm-hmm. And in in the book, I actually at one point calculate the odds of producing all the functional proteins that would be required to sustain a minimally complex cell. And the, the numbers are so astronomically small, they're, they're effectively zero. You know, one, one chance in 10 to the 40,000th power or something like that. You can't even get your mind around a number like that. But that's also a measure of the complexity of the so-called simple cell. The, the hmm. minimally complex cell is a better way to refer to it, is fantastically, is fantastically complex. And, you know, we've been talking a bit about the information in DNA, but it's important to remember that DNA is is processed by a whole system. The information on DNA is processed by a whole system of proteins. And, um, and I, as I mentioned before, even the parts of the DNA that are not involved in coding for proteins are replete with functions. In fact, the non-coding regions of the DNA function much like an operating system in a computer that tell the coding regions, 
uh, when to turn on, when to turn off, when to be expressed, where to be expressed, etc. Et so you're dealing with a complex information processing system inside each cell, one that rivals the capacity of a, uh, in fact, it exceeds the capacity of a modern supercomputer. So it's uh, just an absolutely exquisite piece of nanotechnology at work in even the very simplest one-celled organism. Wow. We have had a treat today. I appreciate so much your taking time out of your incredibly busy schedule and tri- crisscrossing the U.S. and your speaking tour about your new book, Signature in the Cell. Dr. Steve Meyer, I am going to not only carry your book, I'm going to be talking about it nonstop for the next several months. Well, so, I appreciate it, Tom, and it's great to be on your show and also to get to witness your, your skill as a, as a media person as well as a scholar. This is pretty, pretty impressive. To well, me. If, uh, as a way of saying thank you for that compliment, let's have you back on in a couple months and see how your book tour went and what's, what's percolating. Oh, that's super. Okay, okay thanks, thanks so much for joining you us. Bet. Okay, yeah, bye-bye. bye-bye. Well, that was one for the history books, I would say, Dr. Bill Carl. What, what do you say? <laughs> Everybody's getting honorifics today. Yeah. Hmm. For a moment. There you go. Well, well just a terrific time with uh, Dr. Meyer and, of course, the new book that he has out. Mm-hmm. And it's a long title, Significance in the Cell. So looking forward to yeah. that finally being published. Yeah, well, Signature in the Cell is available everywhere. I mean, it's uh, as of Thursday this week. Uh, the 23rd, it is just going to be an exciting moment in the history of the intelligent design movement. Now, I didn't really get into a discussion of the implication. Like, in other words, design seems to be written in the cell. So if design is being shouted by the cell, as in, I'm designed, I'm designed, then who is the designer? And it's our privilege, of course, on this program each week to introduce people to the other lines of evidence that point to the designer having made himself known through the Jewish people and through their revelation, the Old Testament, and then finally through the consummation of that promise through the Jews to bring God himself. As someone said in our trip to England, God put on skin in, in the person of Christ and, of course, became one of us. And uh, and that's the heart of this program, is not only talking about design, but discussing the exciting news of the designer. Thank you so much uh, also for checking out our website, apologetics.org. That's apologetics.org, and you'll see all kinds of additional resources. Again, that's apologetics.org. I'm Tom Woodward. We'll see you again next week on Darwin or Design. 